All right. Well, good morning again, uh, 59th Street family. We welcome those of you who are joining us a little later today as we continue um, and also finish our sermon series titled Living Testimony, uh, where we explore how our Christian faith is not meant just to be proclaimed by our lips alone, but also through our actions and through our lives. And as we round out our sermon series, John, he kind of ends it in a very thoughtful way of encouraging his fellow brothers and sisters to put their trust in Jesus. And just as a quick aside, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, you might not see some slides come up today. Um, I think we're missing a volunteer, uh, but hopefully you can just follow along just fine. Now, as I was thinking about the theme of trust, um, I was reminded of a short conversation I had with Artie um, last Sunday, where we briefly spoke about the movie Top Gun Maverick featuring Tom Cruise. Now, for anyone who's never watched it, um, I highly encourage you to. It was, I think, in my opinion at least, one of the best movies um, in 2022 in terms of the action and the plot. Um, they really don't make movies like this anymore. But anyways, coming back to the movie, um, Tom Cruise's character, uh, Maverick, right there, he was brought out of retirement and he was tasked with leading a team of pilots on pretty much an impossible mission. Um, their goal was to destroy an unsanctioned uranium enrichment plant um, located in some underground bunker at the bottom of a canyon. However, the canyon was also defended by the latest surface-to-air missiles, GPS jammers, and the latest generation of jet fighters as well as older F-14 Tomcats were providing support. And Maverick, in his absolute craziness, as always, he devises an impossible plan to make sure that not only is the mission a success, but that nobody has to die in it, despite it being considered a suicide mission. However, the chances of this succeeding were slim to none. Either they complete the mission and they all make it out alive, or every single one of them die in the process, and the mission is a complete failure. And in order to achieve this crazy plan, Maverick, he's given this team of top graduates from the Top Gun Academy, and he begins to push these people to their limits. During their training, Maverick would simulate the mission over and over again, testing the limits of not just the aircraft, but also the limits mentally and physically of the pilots themselves. However, before the team was fully ready, before training was completed, they were unfortunately forced to be sent out. And so the simulation time was over, training time was over, and it was now time for the actual mission. And so the team, as they prepare for the mission, obviously there were a lot of nerves. Um, they were not perfectly in sync. Some individuals did not pass the simulation, but were thrown into the fray anyways. All of their lives were on the line. But when it came time to do their mission, the only way they could succeed was if they trusted. They had to trust in their training, their equipment, they had to trust in the good of the plan and of the mission, but they also had to put their trust in Maverick as well. And while Top Gun Maverick is, of course, a fictional story, um, it illustrates the very real challenges that we face in life. We're often put into situations that seem impossible to overcome. Uh, we may feel like we are facing the most insurmountable task or the most insurmountable problem where the chances of success 
are slim to none. But like Maverick and his team, we have a choice. We can either give up or we can put our trust in something greater than ourselves in order to be propelled further into a deeper relationship with God. And for those of us gathered here today, we know that that someone greater, that greater faith is our faith in Christ. That there is a trust in a God who is in control, a God who loves us, and a God who directs all of human history in a direction of total renewal. And so why don't we take a look at our passage today um, from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. 1 John chapter 5, 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is, of course, a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, as John starts off the conclusion of his letter, he starts off by encouraging the people to give them hope, to give them a hope to call them into assurance. That just as the team Maverick trained, uh, yeah, sorry, just as the team that Maverick trained were taught to trust in the plan, to trust in their training, and to trust in Maverick, John calls us to trust as well. And, well, what are we supposed to trust in? Well, the first thing that John emphasizes in his letter is the assurance of salvation. And this assurance is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 13, John tells his readers that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And the reason this verse is so powerful is that throughout the entire letter, we have heard of false teachers and of false prophets, but John wants to remind his readers that despite being tossed each and every single way by these false teachings, there is something solid that they can stand on. They can have complete confidence, complete trust in their eternal salvation with God through their faith in Jesus Christ. And for many of us, the assurance of salvation can be kind of a difficult thing to maintain. Um, we often struggle with imposter syndrome or feelings of unworthiness or doubt. Perhaps we believe that we have not done enough or we have not been good enough as Christians. But the entire point of our assurance of salvation is that it is not based on our own works or our efforts, but it is based entirely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
And it is this assurance that literally frees us from the fear of death and from the power of sin because it fills us with peace and hope knowing that our eternal lives are held secure by our loving Father. But like most things in Scripture, um, although we are given this assurance that should grant us, of course, a feeling of peace, this is also kind of like a delicate flower or a garden that we need to cultivate in order to take our faith into a deeper level. Now, how do we do this? How do we take our faith into a deeper level? Well, John, he gives us a few clues. First, John emphasizes the importance of having confidence in our relationship with God. In the first half of verse 14, John encourages um, the readers that our eternal life is the confidence we have in approaching God. And the point of this is that our confidence in our salvation is directly tied to our confidence in knowing who God is, in having a relationship with our God. And so in order to move the knowledge of salvation from our heads down to our hearts, it's important that we cultivate our relationship with God, to know that we are loved by him, to know that he desires to have a personal relationship with us, and to know that we call him our father because we are his beloved children. And so the question we're left with is, how confident are we in our relationship with God? Do we trust him? Do we believe him? Do we love him? But also, do you have confidence going to him, knowing that you are already clean and holy in his sight? And so that's the first way, through developing mutual confidence in our relationship with God. The second way we're called to cultivate our assurance of salvation is through prayer. Specifically, prayer according to God's will. In the rest of verse 14 and into 15, John emphasizes the point that we ought to pray according to God's will. And when we pray according to God's will, God will do whatever we ask. And this is an incredibly powerful promise that God gives us, that just as sure that, as, sorry, that just as sure that we are that we are saved, we can be just as confident knowing that God not only hears our prayers, but that God also answers our prayers as well when our will aligns with God's will. Now, does that mean that God will give me whatever I want? Well, of course not, right? This is not a blanket promise that believers will receive everything we ask for in prayer. We have to remember, right? Prayer is not a means of manipulating God to get what we want. Rather, the purpose and the intent behind prayer is to align our purpose with God's purpose to seek to participate in God's plan for the world. And so what are some things that are aligned with God's will that we can pray for and expect an answer from? Well, there are, of course, a lot of things that are aligned with God's will. But in our passage, John highlights two things. The first one is overcoming sin. If we pray to overcome sin, God will answer us. And the second thing that we can pray for that is aligned with God's will is knowing Jesus Christ. When we make these two aspects our priorities, we can be confident that our prayers will not only be heard, but they will be answered. And so let's take a look at these two points, well, starting first with overcoming sin. And when it comes to overcoming sin, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that 
there is fundamentally a problem within our lives. John makes it clear in verse, four, uh, verse 17, he says that all wrongdoing is sin. And the statement is quite sobering because acknowledging that all wrongdoing is sin means that we are actually all equal in the fact that we are all sinners. We all do what is wrong without exception. Often, I think we desire to compare ourselves with others by believing our sins are not as bad as someone else's. And objectively, from a human standpoint, perhaps that's true, right? Stealing, in general, is less awful than murder. But regardless of the gravity of sin, it shows us that all of our hearts, whether we think we're good, whether we think someone else is evil, all of our hearts are essentially corrupted. Wrongdoing is wrongdoing, regardless of the magnitude, and our hearts are always moving us in a direction that is opposite from God. And that is something that we have to be quite honest. We have to be honest with ourselves with that fact. And so in order to overcome the challenge of sin, we have to first acknowledge its existence within our lives and within our hearts. The thing is, we cannot change until we understand that we need to change. And as we move towards an acknowledgement of our sin, John invites us to overcome sin through prayer, especially by being prayed for. In verse 16, um, John encourages his brothers and sisters in Christ that if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. And this reminds me a lot of the scripture reading read earlier about the importance of believers coming together and the strength that it provides. And the reason John invites us, brothers and sisters, to pray for one another is twofold. First, John has already told us that when we do pray in accordance to God's will, that he will answer it. And part of God's will is moving us away from death and sin and into the life of Christ. That is something that God desires for all of us. But another reason we are to pray for one another is that, not, is that it not only helps the person who is struggling with sin, but it also strengthens the community as a whole. When we pray for one another, we are acknowledging our struggles, we are acknowledging our vulnerabilities with our fellow brothers and sisters who are gathered here today, we are mutually inviting God's presence and guidance into our lives, and although we, we often don't do confessionals at church, as the Roman Catholic Church does, there is a power. There is a power in bringing our sins before our fellow brothers and sisters. It releases the guilt and the shame in our lives, but it also invites the other person to give us the gospel message of forgiveness in turn. See, the gospel is not just meant for non-believers but it's also meant for us as well, that we are to preach the message of forgiveness to one another, especially when we see each other going towards sin. And finally, the last method that John presents in helping us overcome our sin is to remember who we truly are. It is true, we are sinners, but at the same time, it is true that we are not. Um, we are, as Martin Luther says in Latin, he says, simul justus et peccator, 
We are without a doubt sinners, but we are also justified. We are justified through the blood of Christ. And because we are justified through the blood of Christ, we must realize the fact that we are not just sinners, but we are also the children of God. We have to adopt that as part of who we are as our identity. John tells us in verse 18 that the one who is born of God, being Jesus, keeps them, being God's children, safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that once you believe in God, you will know, you, you'll never sin for the rest of your life. But what it means is that sin will no longer have mastery over our lives. Instead, we have a new master. We have a new father, and his name, of course, is Yahweh. He is the one who keeps us safe, and he is the one who has claimed victory over sin and death. And because we are now not sinners, but we are now his children, we are protected by God, and we are given a new status as his holy children. So what does this practically mean in our lives? It means that as we acknowledge our sins, as we confess our sins to one another, and as we receive forgiveness from God and receive his protection, we are now also given a choice of asking ourselves, which master will we follow? Will we choose to remain as children of God and seek our Lord, or will we choose to remain in sin? Which identity will we remain in? Which master do we trust will truly bring us joy, meaning, and purpose? And the only way to answer that question properly is by knowing Jesus Christ. And when it comes to knowing Jesus Christ, John presents us with a challenge. In verse 20, he tells us that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And this knowledge is not just any kind of knowledge, but rather it's a deeply personal and experiential knowledge of Jesus. And what I mean by this is that knowing Jesus is not just some sort of mental exercise you do by studying scripture or learning theological concepts. Without a doubt, those are incredibly important and those found a foundation for us to kind of build upon. But to truly know Jesus is about an intimate personal relationship with him. It's about recognizing his presence in our lives. It's about listening to his voice. It's about following Jesus as our shepherd. And this kind of knowledge requires not just our minds, but it requires our hearts and our wills as well. This knowledge of Christ requires a response from us. If knowing Christ is a relationship, it calls us to respond appropriately to his invitation by surrendering our lives to him and being transformed into his likeness. It means trusting in Jesus completely, even when we don't understand everything or when you know, things don't go according to our plans. And the reason we're able to trust in Jesus against all odds is because we know him. We know him not just with our minds, but with our hearts and with our lives. We know we have experienced God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and God's direction in our lives as he directs us as a shepherd lovingly directs his sheep. And so as John ends his passage, 
he tells the readers, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And by ending his entire letter this way, John leaves the ball in the court of his readers. As they come to know God, as they come to experience his goodness, his wisdom, his faithfulness and love, which master will his readers follow? Which master will his readers serve? Where will his readers go to seek joy, peace, hope, and purpose? Where will they go to find true satisfaction for their souls? And so as we end the series, the ball is now in our courts. Do we know the Lord whom we call Christ? Have we experienced his goodness? Have we allowed the gospel to grow its roots deep within our own hearts? And if not, that's okay. I invite you to talk with me, maybe after service or sometime during this week, and we can explore how we can move this knowledge from our head down into our hearts. But for those of you who have experienced God's goodness and have responded to Christ positively, we're now called to move the gospel from our hearts and into our hands. To serve God, whether it's here at church at your workplace, in your neighborhood, or even at home, to live our lives as a living testimony and to be the body of Christ in a broken world. As we're about to enter into a moment of prayer, I invite us all to pray to truly know this God we worship more deeply, to be able to trust in his salvation and his power to help us overcome our sins, but also to pray that we will be ignited or reignited to find our mission and our purpose in his will. So why don't we come together um, for a time of prayer? Lord, we pray today to know you better. Um, we pray that we will be able to see your work amongst our lives in, in clear ways. Uh, that your plan and will won't be hidden from us, but will be revealed to us so that our eyes can see just exactly who you are and what you want us to do. And Lord, we also thank you that you listen to all of our prayers. You desire to know us. You desire to know our pains and our struggles. You desire to know the sin within our hearts, not so that you can judge us, but so that you can transform us and take that which is broken and make it whole. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And we thank you, Lord, for the power it gives us to overcome our sins and be able to love our enemies as ourselves. And so help us, Lord, to hold on to these promises from you. Help us, Father, to be good stewards of the good news that is your gospel. And Father, ignite within our hearts a desire to serve you. We thank you. We praise you for everything you have done, everything you're still doing in our lives right now, and everything you will continue to do. We pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.